Okay, now we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That with episode 553 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week across AEW and NXT. AEW picked it up in a major way with a significant addition of Dynamite, along with a major announcement on that show. NXT, of course, coming out of the Vengeance Day premium live event, the first TV show after that on the way to Stand and Deliver on WrestleMania weekend. We have an absolutely loaded show for you today, as we usually do. So the Silver King is not going to waste any time kicking it off with a reminder that this podcast is all about Defy. So please go ahead, head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. You can also, by the way, leave comments on Spotify, individual episodes, if you so choose. We can't really reply to them or anything, but if you have a thought on the show, you want to give us some praise, whatever the case might be, you can do it there. Just a heads up. One of those recent comments we received is from someone named either Mish or Meech. I'm not sure if it's a male or a female, but they were requesting the email address of the podcast since they don't use Twitter and therefore can't send us uh, DMs or tweets there. So our email, in case anyone hasn't heard it on the show previously, is gettingoverpod at gmail.com. You can email us questions and comments for the show. You can send in the last word questions, whatever the hell you want, uh, advertising inquiries, really any questions personal for the Silver King or for Vintage, gettingoverpod at gmail.com. But that does give me the opportunity to remind you to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. It is also where you can send in those questions, comments, whatever they may be, via tweet, via DM, and we will do our best to read some of them and answer some of them right here on the show. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up. You will get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant reactions to Raw, NXT, Dynamite, and SmackDown every single week, along with exclusive news posts generally coming out each Friday. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. We would greatly appreciate your support. Now, obviously, this show is primarily about NXT and AEW. I did forget to make a key point on our Tuesday WWE show when it came to the entire Cody Rhodes, Rock, Roman Reigns conversation. I received a couple DMs about this general topic in regards to what happened on Raw, and I didn't really provide the proper context to what WWE may have been telling us with some of the booking Monday night. Now, this show is coming out early Thursday afternoon about six-ish or so hours before that WrestleMania press event. I did already share this information earlier this week on Tuesday, actually, Tuesday night on buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. It was just a little preface uh, to the NXT instant reaction, but I'm going to repeat it again in case, you know, many of you didn't hear that, even though I did make that particular bonus show free. 
when we get to this WrestleMania press event on Thursday evening, I still expect Roman Reigns and The Rock to headline WrestleMania. There hasn't really been anything that's happened that would dissuade me from believing that they put these two guys on the poster together, they had them in the ring together, and they're not going to lead to a match, which has been reported and rumored and all those things. However, I did find it interesting that Cody basically did not speak on Raw Monday night. And Drew McIntyre, the entire episode, was focused on doing whatever he could to ensure that Cody would not challenge Seth Rollins. Now, if you merge those two things together, that might suggest they actually are pivoting with Cody leaving the Seth and Drew vortex and moving back into Roman and Rock. He has a ready-made match with McIntyre at Elimination Chamber based on that attack, let's just say. That can end in a disqualification or no contest, whatever they need to do to keep both of them strong coming out of that. And then he could transition right back into the Roman Reigns rock situation, no matter what way they go. Obviously, you know, I've been talking about two matches or ideally rock as the ringside enforcer. A triple threat is another option, but the triple threat really does not work because you don't get rock Reigns and you don't get Reigns Cody. So that triple threat is almost, I don't want to say it's worse, but it's not that much better is what I'll say. I was just kind of pissed that we published the entire show on Tuesday and I left this part of the breakdown out because I had a whole note on it to deliver to all of you. So I figured I'd share it here, as I said, hours before this press event goes live, just to get it on the record in case of whatever might happen Thursday in the late afternoon on the West Coast, uh, early evening here on the East Coast. So with that said, that was the WWE tidbit right off the top. Let's go ahead and move into the show. We're going to start with NXT. It's just a shorter breakdown, and we're also coming off of Vengeance Day, and then we're going to dedicate a significant portion of the show to AEW. As always, there are timestamps in the episode description, so if you want to skip around and just listen to AEW or NXT, whatever the case, you have that opportunity. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. I did a second look for NXT Vengeance Day, but the truth is I didn't really have many additional thoughts watching the show a second time. The women's match was better than I remembered it being, but I still graded it right initially at four stars and an A minus. Nothing's changing there. I did want to upgrade the Obafemi Dragon Lee, just a quarter star to 3.5. It was a really good David versus Goliath match. Femi looked like an absolute monster in the finish, and yes, he's still green, but despite that, he just did really well, and Dragon sold his ass off for him. That was super enjoyable. The other thing I wanted to point out that I missed, the camera work throughout the Ilya Dragunov Trick Williams main event, it was excellent. The way Carmelo Hayes was kept in the frame, almost the majority of the match, so that we could see him actively rooting for and supporting Trick the entire time before they did the heel turn at the end, the swerve, that was perfect. That match itself on rewatch, it's even better than I remembered. It's undoubtedly the match of the year in WWE to this point. You know, we're only, what are we, 39 days into the year as we tape this podcast. I really wavered about going into A-plus territory for it. What held me back was the simple fact that Trick was green and there were a number of parts where you could see him just standing there waiting for Ilya. Uh, Other opportunities where he had to sell the knee that he didn't actually do it. He just kept hitting his knee instead of selling it, limping, doing all those types of things. So some of those technical elements weren't there that you need to have a perfect or nearly perfect match. But again, 
saying a match is 4.5 stars, that is pretty much as good as you can expect, especially from someone as young to the business like Trick. So that's the entirety of the NXT Vengeance Day second look. Like I said, there really wasn't much to go over that we didn't already discuss on the Instant Analysis podcast. And if you happen to miss that show, it is in our archives. Make sure you go and listen to the NXT Vengeance Day Instant Analysis. So with that said, let's move into what happened Tuesday on NXT. Carmelo Hayes opened the show dressed in black combat gear with a steel chair. Bro looked like a member of Jodeci, straight up. He got serenaded with nonstop booze, fuck you, Mello, and another longer chant that I couldn't quite make out what they were saying. Legitimate nuclear heat for him. He sat and let it all envelop the arena and then said, not yet, dropping the chair and walking off. And I'm realizing here there was actually one additional note I wanted to provide from the Vengeance Day second look that I missed. So he wears out Trick, like his knee with the chair 10 different times, right? And the chair is so bent. He tries to open it, is unable to sit in the chair. So he does the smartest thing. He takes the chair, turns it around, hits Trick on the knee one more time, and bends it back just enough so he's able to sit on the chair and not go get another one for the closing shot that they wanted for Vengeance Day. I completely forgot to mention that. Anyway, back to Tuesday. This was just perfect from start to finish, that opening segment with Mello. Easily the most NXT heat that someone's had since Tommaso Ciampa, and I'm not including Dominic Mysterio as part of that. It was awesome to see that land as well as it actually did. It was a terrible job by the USA Network censors muting every word except fuck. It was hysterical that they try so hard to do that, and they completely failed at their job. The raw clip that's circling around, you can find it on Twitter, it's tremendous when you hear the entire reaction live without any of the muting. So in the parking lot, Ilya Dragunov denied an interview request saying he was there to get answers from Mello. He hit the ring, putting over Trick for going to war with him, saying he'd be a worthy champion if he was ever to lose the title. Then he called out Mello for dragging his name through the mud with all the false accusations, saying that fans gave it to him verbally, but he would take him out physically and give him what he deserves. He said, quote, I will go beyond breaking you, you traitorous son of a bitch. Baller line from Ilya. He was on fire throughout this entire promo. Dijak entered instead of Mello, actually got distracted by the crowd chanting, like at and around him. There wasn't much said between them, but it got contentious with Dijak perfectly punching Dragunov in the cut on his head, immediately making him bleed. Security and referees jumped in and they were actually successful holding people apart for a change. That was kind of fun. So Dijak, he's coming off a rivalry win and there's no one else in NXT built up enough to believably challenge Dragunov at this juncture. They also haven't fought in eight months since Ilya uh, has been champion. That's plenty of reason to go back to this as a feud for the actual title. So color me surprised when they announced the match would be the main event of the show. This is something that could have been built up as next week's main event or maybe a roadblock match on the road to stand and deliver. I was just surprised they gave it away here. And again, I'm surprised they had Dijak lose so quickly after getting the first significant win he's had in a long time. That was a little bit weird. And I'm jumping ahead also to that match. But nevertheless, you understand my point. Ilya was great in his promo. He was straight up incensed at Melo's betrayal of Trick. The only negative was the fans trying to get themselves over rather than let the guys talk. And a little Easter egg was the yellow mask previously worn by Joe Gacy and his crew could be seen as part of the big yellow NXT logo above the ring during this segment. They didn't allude to it. They didn't say anything about it, but it was there. And obviously Gacy and Dijak are feuding. So Melo came back out later, opening hour two, sitting on the chair under a spotlight, 
with the WWE Performance Center darkened around him. Fans chanted, you're not him. Mello said the villain is always the villain when the hero is telling the story, but he has a side to tell as well. Mello said he's not jealous of Trick's success. He allowed him to succeed and wanted him to achieve, but he took it away from him to remind him of his place in the pecking order. Hayes said Williams crossed him, biting the hand that feeds him when he went after the NXT title behind his back instead of the North American title as they had agreed. He said Trick bought his own hype from the fans, and then he admitted to that attack all those months ago. Suddenly, Trick's music hit, but it was all a ruse by Mello to fool the crowd because he's laid up in the hospital. Mello said he's the coldest, they're not on the same level, and Trick failed, trying to push him to the side while attempting to emulate Mello with his glasses, his entrance, and his gear. Mello said it was never a collaboration, Trick was just a hype man, saying that's all he is, it's all he's ever gonna be. Vic Joseph had a great line saying Mello, quote, is not a Casanova, he's a coward. That refers to his independent wrestling name, which was Christian Casanova. That was pretty good from Vic right there. Don't get it twisted. Mello is absolutely him. This was stellar. He was ice cold. Not only the way he delivered the promo perfectly without slipping or stumbling or even pausing, but the fact that he was able to go through the entire thing despite nonstop crowd chants, including some pretty inventive ones that would have taken other wrestlers off of their games. Most important was the reasoning, which made complete sense and included much of what we discussed on the show previously. Everything from Trick taking Mello's spot to insultingly pushing him aside to actually acting like him, which was on full display, especially the glasses during Vengeance Day. I remembered thinking to myself, When Trick made the entrance, he doesn't normally wear those glasses or slide into the ring like that. He did mellow stuff. He even did the first 48 during the match, if you remember. So Trick was taking stuff from Mello. So Mello, again, not justified in doing what he did, but justified in being angry. We say this on the show all the time. The best villains, the best heels are the ones with legitimate reasons to be upset. They just go about expressing it the wrong way. That's Mello. And now we have what is easily the hottest NXT story in years going into WrestleMania 40 weekend. Just tremendous work by him over the 48 hours, including this show. I know people are suddenly all over Trick saying he has a higher ceiling than Mello, and maybe he will eventually. But Mello's the truth. And here, he reminded me plenty of Shawn Michaels. I mean, you could see Shawn, and he had, cut the same style of promo in a similar situation 25 years ago. Obviously, HBK did that fake entrance deal previously, I believe with Bret Hart. But even beyond that, this entire segment, the entire way it's been built, it reeks in a positive way of Shawn Michaels. And the fact that you can even put them in the same sentence is a huge credit to the job that Mello is doing. So we got Dragunov against Dijak in a non-title match as the main event of NXT. They had a great hard-hitting sequence. Dijak grabbed Ilya's nose and pulled upward while on his shoulders, only to get drilled driver style into the turnbuckles with Dragunov hitting a flying senton and running boot. Dijak followed with a sit-down choke bomb and chops on the canvas. Ilya came back with chops and basically did that to every single one of his extremities, only for Dijak to counter Constantine special with a lariat and hit a springboard elbow drop with the injured elbow from Vengeance Day. Dijak slid to the apron, presumably to grab something outside, only for Joe Gacy to slide out from underneath the ring with like a toy boxing glove on a stick, punch Dijak in the face. Dragunov took advantage with an H-bomb immediately after that for the win. Well, that was a great matchup, but the ending sucked. And that's just my take on the match. If you want to do that type of finish in a low-card match, fine. 
But Dijak getting beaten with that stupid toy and a single H-bomb, when Trick took like four of them on Sunday and kicked out from three of them, that was ridiculous. The match was banging up until that point. I'll settle on four stars, A minus, a downgrade due to the finish, but it was on its way to an A match, probably in the 4.25 range before that happened. As Ilya was getting to his feet, grabbing his title, Mello ran in, taking out his knee before drilling him with the NXT title and holding it high in the air. Expected that Mello would come back as Ilya's next challenger, and it also presents an interesting scenario. You now have three men who need to wrestle at stand and deliver. Mello and Trick, obviously, they have to fight. That match would be even better with the NXT title up for grabs, but making it a triple threat, even though Dragunov has been part of this story from the start and would make the match better just by virtue of being involved in it, that takes you away from the true feud, which is mellow and trick. Very similar to what I was talking about with Cody Rhodes, The Rock, and Roman Reigns. You want Rock Roman, and you want Cody Roman. You don't really want all three of them together. Here, it does make full sense in storyline, but it's also not the most ideal match, which is mellow and trick. Now, presumably, Williams is going to stay sidelined until Hayes and Dragunov fight. The question becomes whether he interferes and costs Mello the title, and that leads to a non-title fight, maybe at Stand and Deliver, or maybe Hayes winds up using Williams as a distraction, wins the championship. Then they put the title on the line, Trick beats Mello, and you're all set. We're going to have to see how it plays out. I just wish there was time to do both of those matches on big shows so all parties could be satisfied, and I just don't see them having the time for that when Mello has already made multiple appearances on SmackDown and Dragunov could literally be called up at any time they want and immediately be a perfectly fine mid-carter, upper mid-carter on the main roster. Upper mid-carter obviously would be my hope. So we'll have to see how this entire thing breaks down. Roxanne Perez fought Lola Vice. Roxy hit a double jump springboard moonsault but got caught in a rear naked choke only to stand and push Lola into the corner. Vice countered Pop Rocks and hit a perfect spinning back fist when suddenly Tatum Paxley randomly ran down with the NXT breakout contract, trying to cash it in, even though it's not hers and it's already been cashed in. Vice took her off the apron with Buenos Noches as Perez caught Lola distracted with Pop Rocks for the win. Roxy celebrated. Lola was obviously furious at Tatum. Solid match as usual. Roxy did the heavy lifting. No question about that. The booking of the finish was kind of odd with Tatum, but one presumes that will be explained further in the coming weeks. Roxy was obviously the appropriate winner coming out of it. This was definitely Lola's best singles match, and it was in a solid B range. I don't grade every single match, but that's where it would have landed. Uh, Braun Breaker and Baron Corbin were ringside with the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic Trophy, with Breaker getting the ring announcer to do a whole shtick, calling them the Wolf Dogs. Corbin made a joke about Breaker, you know, in the ropes and didn't land at all. Then they called out the champions, but instead competitors for the next match came out. This was easily the Wolf Dog's weakest segment together. Nothing particularly funny or smart. It was just straight up boring. Axiom and Nathan Frazier fought Idris Anofe and Malik Blade. Now this got built, if you'll remember, during Vengeance Day. Uh, and this match followed uh, the Wolf Dog's moment and they stayed on commentary, the heels did. Frazier and Blade did simultaneous topes in a really hot moment. Blade countered a flying crossbody into a flipping fallaway slam. Axiom took Anofe off the top with a Spanish fly, and Frazier added a Phoenix splash in the middle of the ring for a broken fall. Frazier hit a box jump superplex on Blade, and then he moved into a brain buster with a bonus heel kick from Axiom. Anofe and Blade came back with a double twisting slam of Axiom broken by Frazier, who flew into the cover. Blade sold a knee outside. Frazier hit a Phoenix splash on Anofe with Axiom adding golden ratio. The heels attacked after the bell. D'Angelo family entered, and a challenge was set for next week. This was so damn good. Like beyond any expectation you possibly could have had 
coming into the match. It was as high octane as you could possibly get with the right winners, but also a great showing by Anofe and Blade, who always seem to occasionally have a high quality match, only to just get lost in the shuffle afterward. This just completely overdelivered. I'm gonna go. Ah oh man, this one's tough. I'm gonna say four stars A minus, but if you're completely into that type of wrestling, I could see it easily being a flat A, like a 4.25 A for you. It was a damn good match. Maybe I'm underrating it. You know, I might be underrating this and the Dijak Dragunov match now that I think about it. But both for me, tippy top of A minus, like a 92 out of 100, um, pretty much for both of them. Again, one suffered by the finish. The other, there wasn't much storytelling in this tag team match. It was more just moves, but both immensely entertaining, both completely worth watching. If you're not a regular NXT viewer, highly recommend them. JC Jane and Thea Hell were celebrating the Chase U calendar selling out. Thea was about to go ringside for Riley Osborne's match, but JC convinced her to play hard to get, even though they already have a Valentine's Day date set. That led into Osborne and Lexus King. Riley got distracted, noticing Thea was not in the Chase U student section. That led to King catching him with a draping uh, coronation, his finisher, which is always draping, I think, uh, for the win. Later backstage, Thea played it cool as Riley was disappointed she wasn't there, but then she freaked out when he confirmed their Valentine's Day date with JC again bringing her back to earth. King, he's getting some wins and they're properly slow playing him because he shouldn't be jumped up to the main event side you know, right away anyway, but it also feels like he's yet to truly do anything significant since arriving. Hale and Jane, they remain fun together, but the way they play Thea is like she's 14 or 15 and has never been on a date before, not like a 19-year-old or 20-year-old in college who you would think has had such experience already. It's a little bit odd. Uh, Von Wagner and Mr. Stone commiserated backstage over the Heritage Cup loss. The kids, uh, Stone's kids, attacked them from behind uh, a couch. They jumped over the couch and convinced Stone to tag with Wagner against Metaphor, suggesting a sneak attack. Cute video with the kids. I still don't see this or Wagner working long term. There's just not enough in the overall package to be a fit for WWE, especially not the main roster. But for an NXT low card type of dude, I guess it's fine. Fallon Henley and Ren Sinclair fought Lash Legend and Jakara Jackson. The heels talked shit on the faces before Noam Dar dismissed the tag team challenge from Wagner and Stone. No quarter catch crew then came up, giving Dar shit for fighting people he's already beaten instead of taking new challengers. Extremely solid work both ways with Fallon and Lash, obviously the stars of the match. They did a tug of war with Jakara, leading to Fallon taking a rope to the throat. Sinclair tagged in to give her a beat, but Legend immediately caught her with a choke up powerbomb for the win. I love the inventive finish with Henley kind of getting excused out of it. The heels looking strong, but it was the worst match on the show. And that's not even like a huge negative. It just was the worst match on the show. Brooks Jensen wearing the Briggs and Jensen tag team shirt went up to Josh Briggs backstage. They had a quick talk, but as Briggs walked away, Jensen admitted he was lost without him and Fallon Henley and needs them both back in his corner. Briggs had like a heelish smile on his face, turned around, Gave Jensen some real tough love, shoving him against the lockers, saying he's not a kid anymore and needs to be able to stand on his own two feet like Briggs and Henley are, grow some damn balls instead of pouting in the corner like a baby. This was easily the most Briggs has shown just period as a character throughout his entire NXT run to this point. And look, he was spitting facts here about the Jensen character. I assumed they would split and Jensen would go on a losing streak or something, but this works even better. Now I want to see Briggs straight up kick his ass so he can build himself back up and eventually topple him, right? But as I've said before, and I hate repeating this because it's like denigrating someone, but Briggs has an immensely high ceiling 
And Jensen, at least to me, does not. But maybe this storyline, the way they play it out, maybe they can create something out of it. We will find out. Kalani Jordan got an extended promo video saying she wants to top the women's division and refuses to settle for anything less. Kiana James and Izzy Dame uh, criticized some trainees watching that video happen with Brindley Reese hopping up all energetic, excited for Kalani. Izzy bullied Brindley to give up her coffee, which Kiana poured into a trash can. They'll do Brindley Kiana next week, and one presumes a tag team match will follow in the near future after Kalani like makes the save because Brindley had her back. Would be interesting to see them team. They're very similar with their backgrounds, their athleticism, and we'll see where this goes. But I don't know. This wasn't that great for me. Uh, Jada Parker backstage asked Ava for Adriana Rizzo one-on-one next week. Ava agreed as long as the guys were not ringside because D'Angelo family would be defending the tag team titles against the Wolf Dogs. Ridge Holland then came in asking for all of Gallus. Ava agreed, but as a gauntlet rather than three-on-one, just like we surmised would happen last week. He really should not run through all three of them. Perhaps he beats the first two, loses to Joe Coffey, and then they rematch down the line. Ava did look in control here, like as a general manager of the brand, which was good. And if you remember, the one criticism we had given of her was kind of like the way she speaks, which really there's nothing she can actually do about that. But she's improving that way as well. So, hey, all in for Ava. In fact, Blake Murphy at Chloe Elkhound wrote in, he said, the by proxy Ava hate is out of hand. He's talking about regarding The Rock. Not sure how WWE can course correct this. She deserves none of this. Too many of these so-called fans on social media are bullies. However, I consider no one doing this to a product that they claim to love to be actual fans. And you're spot on. Now, what Blake is talking about is Ava said she legitimately received death threats over Dwayne Johnson and what's going on with Cody Rhodes and Roman Reigns. That is the height of absurdity. Like, I can't even imagine what needs to connect in someone's head where they feel it's appropriate to do that. So, you know, F those people, first of all. Second of all, credit to the NXT crowd who after like, I think it was the Parker Rizzo segment, or maybe it was the entirety of it and the Holland, I forget how it transpired, but they actually chanted, thank you, Ava. So hopefully she felt the love in Orlando and that overcame some of the stress that she had to deal with during the week from fans, whichever, hopefully it's only a couple, uh, you know, tweeted or DM'd her negative stuff like that. It's ridiculous, be better. Uh, and Ava is doing a good job, but even beyond her doing a good job, she doesn't deserve hate for something her father may or may not, we think, did, um, but perhaps did not do. And also, we'll see how it all plays out again on Thursday. So that wraps up NXT this week. Clearly, we did have a lot to discuss there. Let's go ahead and move over to AEW. And regarding AEW overall, it's becoming clear, and I know this has been the case for a while, but it fully crystallized for me this week. Dynamite is the show truly worth watching. And yes, some weeks, even Dynamite may not be that great, but it's generally the best show and has been by a significant margin over the last month. Rampage is a total throwaway. Collision is only worth watching for specific matches or storylines. We're gonna continue to review all of it here, obviously. I'm just stating this as like a viewer's guide for all of you. If you just tape Collision, and then look at the card and look at like what happened, then you can decide what to watch. Do that, you're gonna save yourself three hours a week between Rampage and Collision and just focus on the two hour Dynamite. You're gonna enjoy the AEW product a lot more. To that end, 
Dynamite was exceptional Wednesday. AEW, they finally figured out the secret sauce again, which as always has been high quality wrestling that makes storyline sense. They largely went away from that on TV for some unknown reason, but the Continental Classic seems to have woken Tony Khan up to a degree. If you're gonna spend millions upon millions to add the likes of Will Ospreay and Jay White and Brian Danielson and whomever else, duh, focus on the in-ring action and deliver your promise of being a sports-like presentation. Wouldn't be surprised if Dynamite does a tremendous rating this week, maybe even 900,000 or higher for what was a great show that was paced well and basically had five matches, four of which were totally worthwhile to watch. Now, all that said, last week, you'll remember 50% of AEW's matches had full storylines or some build. And we're going to keep doing this every week. I'm not expecting it to ever be 100%, but it needs to be 66% or better, you know, and then maybe we'll stop. But it was 50% last week, which was the best it had been in a long time. This week, we were down to 33%, just five of the 15 matches they put out across five hours of television. Included among those five, though, those five with build, were four out of five matches on Dynamite. And that factors into what I was just talking about. Including among the 10 that did not have any build or anything were all four women's matches from TV, which again speaks to the lack of care for that division when it comes to TV. I am not sure if Mercedes Monet alone is going to fix that, but maybe we can be pleasantly surprised. So there's your intro. Let's break down everything that happened across Dynamite Collision and Rampage. On Collision, Swerve Strickland came out for an interview where he shouted out uh, black wrestling champions like Ron Simmons, Kofi Kingston, and Athena. He also said he's done some horrendous things, but does not regret any of them because it's gotten him to this point. Swerve promised to beat Hangman Page again, putting him in position to make further black history by becoming AEW champion. Prince Nana got hyped by his side. Swerve said he wants him ringside, but has no desire for there to be any interferences during the Dynamite match. So Nana just danced. Uh, this was the second best AEW segment from the weekend. It was also a nice prelude into the big showdown on Dynamite. We're going to move right to that. Hangman against Swerve for the number one contendership. This opened the show. Uh, there was backstage footage of them walking out on the stage, which was pretty cool. The crowd was fully behind Swerve as the heel. Hard hitting as expected. Swerve took a tough spill outside, drilling his shoulder on the LED part of the apron. Then he came inches from breaking his neck. Seriously, uh, countering off the ropes into nothing. Hangman hit a Liger bomb before the referee half-checked to see if he was okay. Hangman got booed as he tried a buckshot lariat. Swerve avoided it, hit him with his own move, plus a Swerve stomp for a fantastic false finish. Later, Swerve hit a draping double stomp off the ropes with Page rolling onto a setup table that immediately collapsed under his body weight. So Swerve ran around the ring, grabbed a second table, but Hangman went inside and got knees up on a 450. Hangman hit almost an inverted buckshot lariat plus a regular one for a rope break false finish. Deadeye on the apron followed with Nana reviving Swerve outside by dancing as he broke the 10 count at like 10.2. Hangman threatened with a chair, but drilled Nana instead. And when he turned around, Swerve booted him in the face with the chair and hit another Swerve stomp only to sell an injured left ankle. Despite eating both of those moves, Hangman was up like two seconds later, rolling through a JML driver and snapping the ankle. Swerve took him off the apron through the new table with Deadeye. Then he tried another Swerve stomp despite his injury and missed, but then didn't sell the ankle on the miss, even though he did the other time on hitting it. Swerve then caught and countered Buckshot into a JML driver with the time limit bell ringing on the two count, despite, best I could tell, no time announcement to the crowd at any point. The ruling was a no contest draw, as we assumed it would be coming into the match. 
Now, Swerve grabbed the mic, demanding five more minutes. Hangman said Swerve had to beat him to become number one contender, but he failed and he will not be champion. Hangman went out to leave, but Tony Schiavone grabbed the mic saying it wasn't done and the crowd got hopeful there was going to be overtime. But instead, it was a triple threat announcement that we expected for Revolution. Let me start by saying this is the early TV match of the year through 38 days between WWE and AEW. Top tier work from bell to bell. I know, by the way, there was a good, I think, TNA match. Was it Will Ospreay and Josh Alexander? Haven't seen it yet. I will try to see it. Maybe I will change my take that this was the TV match of the year to this point. But there were a couple rough moments, nothing that took away from the match. It was interesting to see Swerve use Hangman's moveset, but Paige not do the same for Strickland. It generally works both ways when you do something like that and you're building a match story. Also, Swerve did the buckshot better than Hangman. Just saying. In terms of the finish, commentary told us TV viewers that there were five minutes left, but the in-arena crowd, I don't think they knew best I could tell. In fact, I think AEW usually does a countdown if memory serves. They don't just say five minutes, but sometimes when it gets to the end, they might count it down. That was probably skipped for the surprise element, but I'm not sure it landed as well as it could have. But let me be clear, I don't mind the draw booking at all. Sometimes predictable things are good. Then in the post-match, they successfully executed a double turn. But at the same time, it's illogical for Swerve to be a face after being the most contemptible character in the entire company for the last year. And I know you can say, well, Silver King, they just did the same thing with MJF and Adam Cole. That was a progressive face turn. This was a double turn in one moment. And you also had Hangman being an absolute bitch, not wanting to fight. That is counter to his entire character arc to this point where all he wants to do is fight and prove himself and all that. In other words, it came across as a forced double turn instead of one naturally occurring in storyline. And the only reason to do that, at least as far as I'm concerned, if I was booking, is if you're going to strap up the baby face and you want Swerve to get that pop instead of being a heel winning a title and getting cheered. Because in a triple threat, they already had a baby face in Hangman, a heel leaning tweener in Joe, and a full on heel in Swerve. So it was a real interesting creative decision. Like most viewers, I was already rooting for Swerve, but I didn't want or need him to be a babyface in order for that to happen. It just felt completely unnecessary. Uh, in terms of a match grade, you're not going to get an A-plus out of me for a draw with non-odd distractions and multiple missed spots. Not happening. It's an A. I'm right on the line between 4.25 and 4.5, and... I don't know that it matters. I mean, it doesn't. I know for a fact it does not matter, <laughs> whatever I grade it. Uh, but I'm right on the line. So you can pick your number, but it's right there. It's probably, if we were doing low high, a low 4.5. And if you want to compare it to the Trick Williams Ilya Dragunov match, that probably would have been a middle to high 4.5. Like if you just want to, I think that one was slightly better. This one certainly, there was better work. That one had much better storytelling. So there you go. Uh, but immensely entertaining match. Must watch if you did not see it. That's pretty much the only way I can put it. On Dynamite, after this, Samoa Joe backstage was sarcastic about the match booking, saying it was a celebration of mediocrity and the powers that be are stacking the deck against him. He promised none of it would matter come revolution. He'd walk out as champion, saying both of them would suffer. A-plus promo from Joe, as per usual. The guy cannot miss on the mic. On Rampage, Ricky Starks and Big Bill Fought Dark Order in a non-title match. Darby Island was on commentary. Stark speared Evil Uno outside and hit Rochambeau on John Silver for the win. This was somehow not an eliminator, despite Dark Order being in the tag team rankings. Otherwise, a nothing match. There was one eliminator, a proving ground match, 
And then another match with champion involved all uh, on, on AEW television this week. And again, one of them wasn't an eliminator. It just it doesn't track. There may have actually been two now that I'm thinking about it, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, the tag team championships were on the line on Dynamite. Starks and Bill defending against Sting and Darby in a tornado match. I could be wrong. I think they randomly added the tornado stipulation without explanation. And that obviously for me is frustrating. They immediately went into the crowd so Sting could do the spot where he jumps off a vom onto the heels. They've done that like four times now. The spot of the match was actually Bill, who caught Darby on a tope suicida, countering directly into a high-impact boss man slam at ringside. Starks hit Sting with a scorpion death drop for a broken fall, then sold an ankle on a missed move. Bill took four corner splashes and code red, plus coffin drop outside. He barely caught Darby, if he caught him at all. Sting put Starks in a scorpion deathlock as Darby gouged the eyes of Bill on the ring apron, taking him off it and into a table at ringside with a meteora. Starks ripped off the turnbuckle with a stinger splash, going right into the exposed corner. Then he hit a spear for a three count, ruled a false finish with a scorpion death drop following for the title change with Sting, pinning Starks for the win. Uh, no surprise at all that it was Starks taking the fall, though if it was me and I was in that match, I would also want Sting to be the one to pin me. And just because of the uniqueness, the history of the entire thing. Borden's sons hopped on the barricade and cheered from the ring apron as Sting and Darby hugged and confetti went off. It was the 25th title of his career. The Young Bucks out of nowhere took out Sting's knee and beat up both of the sons as well as Darby. With the new champions obviously wearing all black and the sons were as well, the Bucks were in all white suits with white bats and white hats. Uh, Darby immediately bladed. That way the blood could get all over their suits. Then he ate a now called EVP trigger as the attacks continued for another few minutes after the fact. Good heat for the Bucks in the post-match. I did expect it to be a little bit hotter given it's AEW. There's usually, you know, FU chance as opposed to just a chorus of boos. And what we got here was the chorus of boos. The match was solid throughout Tons of spots meant to make Sting look good and what was likely the penultimate match of his career. The title change was predictable coming in, and personally, I'd not have made it part of the storyline, just given how quick the turnaround needs to be. Also, the fact that the super heel Bucks will either have to beat Sting in his last match or lose to him, and then the faces are vacating the titles weeks after winning them, and you have to presume they do a tournament coming out of that. There's still a chance it all makes sense and plays out perfectly. We're not going to know until we see the final build and we see the match at Revolution. All in all, super entertaining segment, a really nice moment for Sting. As we've said many times before, the Bucks are eons better as heels. Oh, and let's give Big Bill some flowers too, because holy shit, that man has turned his career around in a major way. He's a legitimate mid-carder who can become an upper mid-carder, no question in my mind. In terms of a match grade, I'm probably at 3.75 stars B+, but if you were slightly higher at an A-, I'd be right there with you. Uh, on Dynamite, Tony Khan made his big announcement, and it was that AEW will hold a special event called Big Business for a Dynamite show emanating from Boston on March 13th. He called it both, quote, an important night for AEW and the professional wrestling industry, unquote, and, quote, a night the entire pro wrestling industry will remember, unquote. This is certainly the mercedes Monet debut. And that is quite a way to promote it. Certainly, she is their fourth biggest signing previously from WWE. And you could even make an argument she's bigger than that, maybe the third biggest, just based on her following online. Look, it's going to create headlines for AEW off the bat. As you're going to hear in a moment, if they continue booking the women's division as they have been, it's not going to matter much in the long run. Hopefully that changes with her coming aboard, obviously. Now, it's notable that they're doing this like a CM Punk debut. 
the Mercedes, she does have that rabid fan base. And clearly the idea is to take advantage of that for a rating surge. It's possible they double up with a Kazuchika Okada debut as well. That would explain Tony Khan's exaggerated promotion. But Mercedes is the direct tease here. I'm not sure that promoting the Mercedes debut and then surprising with the Okada signing on the same show is better than just doing them separately. But I'm sure there are fair arguments both ways. I had a couple minor nitpicks. First, there had to be a better name than Big Business that they could have chosen. Also, the logo has three S's for business, but only one of them has a dollar sign in it, despite it ending with two S's. And there's a hidden uh, you know, logo word in the graphic, Boston, B-O-S-S-T-O-N, there's two S's. Those have dollar signs through them, obviously referring to the boss, Sasha Banks. So if you're going to put two dollar signs in the fake Boston that has two S's in it, why would you not put two dollar signs in the word business, which ends with two S's in it? It's so frustrating to me. Just as someone who works, you know, with graphic designers and, and, and works in editorial stuff, just be consistent with the dollar signs. That's all. Uh, there were no hidden messages pertaining to Okada, right? So there you go with that. I did get a DM from Card Cashers at Card Cashers. Silver King, I attended Dynamite in Phoenix. The crowd was hot. You and Chris have to watch Rampage on Friday now. The Bucks have a new theme that sounds just like Succession, uh, also with a similar Titan Tron. Okay, that'll be interesting, obviously, because we have the whole deal with Roman Reigns having a uh, theme that sounds like Succession as well. But he says a question, uh, with Khan's major announcement being big business in Boston, what matches are you most excited to see with Mercedes Monet? I'd say Britt Baker, Tony Storm, and hopefully a returning Jamie Hayter at Wembley. Baker versus Monet could be the feud that ignites the women's division. Thank you. Okay, just being straight up, the only match I actually care about in the entire division for her would be Mercedes and Jamie Hayter. That will tear down whatever house tries to contain it. Chris Statlander, a distant second. Britt Baker would be a really good storyline build but I can see Mercedes getting a good match out of her at the end as well. But that storyline is going to be all like, oh, we didn't need you from WWE and I'm the king of or the queen of the AEW division. And like, you know exactly what that feud's going to be if it ever happens. Maybe Mariah made down the line once they actually build her up as a legitimate con- contender and competitor. That's about it. Like, And that's one of the reasons I thought she might ultimately go back to WWE. Just the ridiculous wealth of women's talent and youth in that division, more than anything with Mercedes and AEW. I'm just curious how much she's going to be used, how frequently she's going to be on TV, and how often she's going to wrestle. Not at the start, but really throughout the entire year, because it's one thing to be utilized like, let's say, John Moxley or Brian Danielson, where they're just always on screen, they're always having matches, they're always involved in a feud that matters. And there's another thing to be used like Even the best women have been used in AEW, where all of a sudden Britt Baker will be on TV three weeks in a row, and then she's gone for two months. Then she's back again, and then she's gone. And I know that she's a dentist and and has other stuff in her life, but there's just been a real inconsistency with using women in the division. Maybe something changes. Maybe like Rampage becomes a one-hour women's show. Maybe, you know, Tony makes a commitment as part of Mercedes' debut that he's going to start investing more in women's storytelling and storylines. I hope so. I really do. But proof is in the pudding when it comes to this. And Mercedes is a huge signing. No question about it. It's going to be a big night when she shows up. They're going to pop a big rating for that show. The question's about being able to sustain it going forward. I don't know 
that Mercedes is going to give them the sustainable ratings that CM Punk did. I think she'll probably be more like a Moxley or Brian Danielson, where she is an A-plus signing and a huge addition, but just makes the show better and doesn't necessarily make the ratings or business better. But again, I could absolutely be wrong, and I certainly hope I am. Going back quickly to the Okada deal, because Mercedes is going to get so much attention here in the United States, that's just one of those reasons why it feels like forcing Okada into the same show doesn't make sense. And by the way, that's assuming they've signed Okada, which we have not heard, and there's been no reports on that. In fact, the latest report, the most recent report, is that WWE was reaching out to him and negotiating with him. But again, he may well have signed with AEW and it doesn't matter. Everything points to him going to AEW, the agent, uh, the trademarks, all that type of stuff. But you never know until it actually happens, right? For me, I would do Okada separate. I think you can promote that not in the same way, but you can promote it as a major moment. You could even have him show up at a pay-per-view. That would probably be the way I would bring Okada in. I don't think I would do it on the back end, like one opening the show, Mercedes opens and Okada closes the show. But they could. Again, he's promoting it as like a, I forgot what the terminology was, an important night for AEW in the professional wrestling industry, a night the whole industry will remember. I mean, just Mercedes showing up, is that a night the whole industry is going to remember? Probably not. Does Tony exaggerate? Yes, he does. So I don't think it tells us one way or the other. I just don't want fans getting their hopes up, right? Because like, you know, you get your hopes up for something to happen and it doesn't happen. You're like, oh, I can't believe they didn't do that. That would have been perfect. But they're not promoting that. They're not promising you that. All they're promoting is Mercedes. So be happy that you get Mercedes. And if you get Okada as well, then be happy that you're getting a little bit of a bonus there. That's it. And if you want more on Okada, we did discuss him at the start of Tuesday's WWE show in our news section. We gave our thoughts on his impact potentially in WWE and AEW. You can go listen to that. On Rampage, Mystico, Hechicero, Volador Jr., and Mascara Dorada fought Matt Seidel, Christopher Daniels, and 2.0. Yes, this was a real TV main event. Hichasero won by trapping Daniel's arms in his legs and rolling him around the ring before putting CD flat on his shoulders for the one, two, three. Let's move on. Uh, Eddie Kingston fought Brian Keith in a proving ground match, which is pretty much like an eliminator match, I guess, on collision. This was basically uh, just strong wrestling throughout, strong style, but the finish was almost identical to the John Moxley match where they slapped the shit out of each other with Eddie's back fist resulting in the one, two, three. Good hard-hitting stuff after the bell. Shivani entered the ring and announced that Keith is all elite, which is kind of strange because in order for that to happen, you kind of need to sign a contract. You don't, you can't just tell someone, by the way, we signed you. Like, or does Tony Khan just get to acquire whoever he wants whenever they want if, if he's in the ring? It's just kind of weird the way they did that. Uh, on Collision, Brian Danielson fought Hechicero. Danielson came out to raise Keith's arm at the end of the prior segment. This match followed. For a big guy, Hechicero flew around and Pretty damn good inside and out of the ring. Danielson caught him flying into the ring, hitting a double underhook driver and putting in the label lock. Brian escaped the submission, only to eat a hammerlock spinning backbreaker. They had a great counter sequence. The referee completely, and I mean completely, botched the finish. He counted one, two, three with literally no one's shoulders down. And then about 10 seconds later, they did the trap cover that was planned as the finish. And that got another one, two, three. Hechicero attacked after the bell. That led to Claudio Castagnoli making a save. This was extremely well wrestled. And it was an extremely entertaining match. The best part of either weekend show by a mile. This was the only thing better than Swerve's promo. The referee absolutely killed the end of it, though. Honestly, I don't call for people to lose their jobs on here. But that's a fireable offense. Or it's at least one worthy of a demotion to Ring of Honor. Truly awful. This was a borderline A for me, but I'm at four stars A minus. 
Definitely worth watching. On Dynamite, Blackpool Combat Club fought the CMLL Luchadors. Mox cut a promo last week saying he respects Lucha Libre and isn't actually mad at them, but they can't talk shit in his house and get away with it. He also referenced WWE saying that the Luchadors shouldn't think AEW is, quote, easy, lazy American wrestling like that other show. Okay, John. Uh, Shivani called this a grudge match. Before the introductions, it's not a grudge match. Uh, the Luchadors did their thing with Dorada and Pressing in particular. Hechicero again did the hammerlock backbreaker on Brian with Dorada hitting a uh, 450 for a broken fall. Strange spot where Dorada hit a code red and then Mox just stared, waiting to break it up as, for a 2.5 count. Brian hit the Bazaiku knee on Volador. Uh, BCC basically did whatever it wanted without tagging, while CMLL actually followed the rules. Hechicero accidentally ran into the referee with Claudio low-blowing him for the win. Three other luchadors, including Mystico, jumped the barricade ready to fight, so 2.0 Daniels and Seidel chased them away. Such a random assortment of individuals, I swear. Clearly, there is going to be a multi-man match, a cross-brand show, or something else coming up. Maybe Anarchy in the Arena at Revolution. That would be my guess as of right now. So look. Well, that was a great matchup, but the ending sucked. Two times in one episode. Tony Khan wasn't going to let his guys lose to CMLL on his own show. So BCC winning made sense, but they won two of the three matches this week by happenstance fashion, with CMLL only beating a bunch of jobbers on the third show in similar happenstance fashion. So basically none of the results actually mattered. That puts a damper on the match, which was rolling pretty hot, but at the same time was just a bunch of moves without anything else. I bet you others will grade this higher. You know who. I was at 3.5 stars and a B, despite the athleticism of the Luchadors. On collision, Red Velvet beat Vert Vixen in less than three minutes. Commentary put over Velvet for having 58 AEW victories. Those must have all happened on Dark, because I don't think I've seen her win more than one match, maybe two matches, and I've seen every single television show that AEW has ever put on air. On Dynamite, Tony Storm fought Velvet in an eliminator match. Now we know why Velvet got a 142nd win for no reason on collision. Deanna Peraza was on commentary. Storm hit a hip attack and a DDT for a strange rolling kickout. Then she won with an ankle lock submission, refusing to let it go until Deanna got in the ring. They went face-to-face. -face. Storm then sniffed her. Lutha pushed them apart. And then everything kind of just petered out. Analysis, this is indeed something that happened. On Rampage, Sammy Guevara backstage said the tag team title loss with Chris Jericho. It stung because now he has a little girl that is depending on him to make money. He said he was coming for the Don Callis family and Powerhouse Hobbs because he played a role in costing them the titles. Hobbs later said he has a family too, and they just threatened Sammy. All sensible, but both parties could have done better with their promos. It was just immensely boring. On Dynamite, Chris Jericho fought Konosuke Takeshka. Hobbs tried distracting early with Sammy running out, hitting him with a chair, and then doing a cutter at ringside. Takeshka hit a great deadlift German suplex. Jericho came back with a code breaker. Takeshka stopped Lion Salt in the ropes for a spinning blue thunderbomb. Jericho took a facial to the top of the ring post, then did a false finish on an avalanche blue thunderbomb that did not hit, and Jericho actually slammed his head on the canvas. I don't think they checked him or really did anything like that. Callus threw a chair into the ring to distract during Walls of Jericho. Then he stabbed Chris in the head with a screwdriver. That allowed Takeshka to put in the walls. Jericho got his arm up before three for a knockout, but got dragged into the middle of the ring for a submission loss. Problems in some executional points during this match for sure. Also an unfortunate finish with Jericho getting excused loss when Takeshka really should have just beaten him clean. Takeshka should not be losing coming out of the Kenny Omega wins, even if his push was delayed unnecessarily. You book him strong here with Jericho to give him that heat back. And instead, 
They have Jericho unnecessarily kick out of an avalanche blue thunderbomb. Then Takeshka needs Callus's interference just to beat him. The idea of Jericho tapping out to his own move, not just getting knocked out, I liked that because AEW 99% of the time in that situation would just have the person get knocked out. So this was kind of a mixed bag for me. Also, I'm kind of exhausted on this feud, which has now been going on for seven months. I'll tell you this, the Tony Storm Red Velvet match was not good. And this was pretty much equally not as good, maybe slightly worse. It was probably the worst match on Dynamite, uh, if you break it all down. On Collision, Daniel Garcia and FTR fought the Patriarchy. Uh, The Faces cut a backstage promo agreeing that their group came together through happenstance, but it's worked well, and they figured, hey, why don't we continue it and go after the trio's titles? Now, besides that, no reason was given for this match actually happening. This was a two commercial break match with the first parts being nothing special. The third, though, had some real fast-paced action led by Garcia, who had a nice sequence with Nick Wayne. Christian Cage snuck into the ring late for a spear on Garcia. Harwood put him into a sharpshooter only to eat a flying cutter from Wayne. Garcia then caught him rolling with a jackknife cover and got the win. Uh, Garcia danced while staring down Christian for like a full minute as Collision went off the air. Now, presumably that's going to be a TNT title match. At least there'd be a shred of build for it. That's positive. I'm slightly confused why Daddy Magic is still on the call for all of Garcia's matches when they aren't operating together in storyline anymore. Overall, despite this match having zero build or reason, it was fun action and a result that creates a title match, and that's positive. On Rampage, Orange Cassidy and Best Friends were backstage, assuming Roderick Strong and Undisputed Kingdom would interrupt them. Once they did, he suggested they hash it out in a trios match. For some reason, they thought it was best not to include Wardlow in this match, despite him being, you know, the most dominant part of their group. Kind of an odd segment. The match booking, whatever. On Dynamite, Orange was informed he's defending his international title against Tomohiro Ishii on Collision. Ishii is obviously great, but he's done nothing to earn a title match in kayfabe or reality. And then this segment awkwardly ended just like the other one, clearly on purpose, but it just it remains odd television. It almost comes off as unprofessional, if that makes sense. Later on, Shivani made a huge deal of something crazy happening backstage when all it was was undisputed, barely laying a finger on Chuck Taylor, who, by the way, is already injured. These guys went from torturing MJF to fighting best friends and taking out a guy already hurt. Enough said. On Rampage, Top Flight fought Private Party. The heels hit Silly String and a great shooting star press for a broken fall. Isaiah Cassidy ate a Spanish fly as Mark Quinn took a pretty cool spinning Uranagi with the faces getting the W. Private Party refused a handshake after the bell and commentary discussed a rubber match which would make sense. Fine match, not much else to say. On Rampage, Willow Nightingale fought Queen Aminata. Willow hit a cannonball, Death Valley Driver, and the Doctor Bomb for the win. She shook Aminata's hand after the bell. Stokely Hathaway regrettably raised her arm and winced when she hugged him, and they both celebrated with him. Chris Statlander was ringside, and she was involved in the whole thing as well. Later backstage, the Outcast interrupted an interview segment with the three of them, and Harley Cameron bit Stokely's hand for some reason. That led to a tag team challenge was Soraya upset that she actually had to wrestle. This and the Best Friends Undisputed segment on Rampage, they were just like unhinged, almost as if no effort was put into them or very little effort was put into them. On Collision, Serena Deeb fought and beat Queen Aminata. Uh, Aminata blocked Detox only to eat a swinging neckbreaker and the Serenity Lock. This was Aminata's fourth AEW match in two weeks. It is ridiculous that they have an entire women's division and they just put on matches like this instead of building storylines and putting things on television that actually matter, that might make fans care about these people. Am I supposed to feel bad for Aminata that she's getting a million opportunities and losing them all? Like, what am I supposed to think about her? 
where's Sky Blue? Where's Julia Hart? Where's Penelope Ford? Like, where are all these women? And there's others. Those are just a couple off the top of my head. Like, where are they? Why can't they wrestle? Uh, on collision, Mark Briscoe hit the ring for an interview that was one cheap pop after another. At one point, he mentioned House of Black taking him out and how he wanted revenge for that. So they eventually interrupted on the big screen with Malachi Black promising to eradicate Mark from the history of professional wrestling. The lights went out and then back on, which Black suggested meant they were already in Briscoe's head. There was no why provided here. The segment went way too long. It's a mess. And you have House of Black feuding with Mark Briscoe. I mean, what does that tell you? On Rampage, Jay Lethal was set to lead some training for his crew with Karen Jarrett saying that she had lined up team names and a photo shoot. Neither Jeff nor Satnam Singh wanted to practice with Jeff saying that Jay is being too nice and they need to get back to being ruthless sons of bitches. He said he'd run the meeting next week. I'm not sure why I remain interested in this, but I am. I, I, I can't explain it to you. I'm sorry. And lastly, on collision, Hook fought the Outrunners. Hook won this handicap match in under three minutes. Why did it even happen? You can ask me that 10,000 times, Cole, and I'm never going to have an answer for you. You have Hook, pretty damn popular, coming out of a match with Samoa Joe that kind of made sense, but also didn't at the same time. Got a lot of momentum behind him, Tony Khan supporting him. And your way of capitalizing on that is having him fight the outrunners in a handicap match that goes less than three minutes on collision. There you go. All right, folks, that was the full breakdown of AEW this week. As you can tell, plenty to be immensely positive about, particularly on Dynamite, but still a lot of problems across Collision and Rampage. This has been another loaded edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, as we always attempt to bring you, and we are publishing it early on Thursday because we have no idea what is going to happen at that WrestleMania 40 press event in the evening. There might be an additional show coming out Thursday, perhaps one on Friday after SmackDown, or we might see you next on Tuesday with our regular WWE edition of the show. Wish I had a more firm answer for you, but we can't do anything until we see what happens on Thursday and perhaps Friday as well. On the way out, allow me to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defied. So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. We also, by the way, make episode announcements there. So if we're going to do an instant reaction, we're going to do a special show. We will announce it on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And please also remember, I happen to love the number... Five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up. You get bonus audio, you get exclusive news, and much more. All of it at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Thank you all so much for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It is officially time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.